Al Jazeera podcast. The shockwaves of the attack on Israel are emanating across the world. And in Washington, D.C., Al Jazeera correspondent John Hendren says it's very visible. I've rarely seen such unity of purpose in the U.S. government. I think the only time it's ever been stronger was after 9-11. At the White House, overnight, it's been bathed in blue and white light. Those are the colors of the Israeli flag, and that gives you an idea of just how strong U.S. support is. And that's across the U.S. government. While the blue and white and the political unity might be new, in other ways, it's business as usual in the U.S. Capitol. We must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. Unwavering support for Israel and whatever moves it may make next, including a ground invasion of Gaza that looks more and more likely. This is an act of sheer evil. This was U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday. Israel has the right to respond, indeed has a duty to respond to these vicious attacks. I just got off the phone with a third call with Prime Minister Netanyahu. I told him, the United States experience with Israel experiencing our response to be swift, decisive, and overwhelming. So, with the U.S. at Israel's back and escalating violence creating a tinderbox, what's next? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Rami Khouri, otherwise known as Rami Khouri. I'm a Palestinian-American. I was born in New York, but my family is from Nazareth in Palestine, now Israel. And uh, we've been there for about almost 300 years. I am a what they call a Distinguished Public Policy Fellow at the American University of Beirut. And I'm writing a book now on my half century of covering and analyzing the Middle East and one of the lessons we learned so we don't repeat them. Making you um, the perfect person to talk to for this episode. What have these past few days been like for you? The past few days have been really painful, but also uh, kind of repetitive. You know, we've seen everything before, except for one thing. There's only one new element in what's happened in the last uh, few days, which is the scale, the technical proficiency, and the pain inflicted on Israel by the Hamas invasion of southern Israel. That's the only thing that's really new. Israel has projected its image in the world as being invincible, technologically supermen and superwomen. Nobody can um, penetrate them. They have the best intelligence. They have the best electronic fences. They've got the best of everything, and they can protect themselves. Well, all that got thrown out the window uh, last Saturday. Yeah. It's the unprecedented nature of the events of Saturday that lay the groundwork for all that is happening and has happened. So 
I want to start with a reported conversation between U.S. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This was reported by the news site Axios that in a call on Sunday, Netanyahu told Biden, quote, we have to go in. We can't negotiate now. So he's talking about a ground invasion in Gaza and that Israel needed to restore deterrence. What have we seen publicly about the U.S.'s support for Israel so far and what its role in this conflict might be? We've seen the U.S. continue its existing policy that has been there for decades, really since the 67 war, which is to give Israel any material, military, political support it needs. And the United States justifies this by saying that Israel is its closest ally and that the Israelis, the Israeli state and the Israeli people have a right to exist. And this policy of total support for the actions of the Israeli state total unquestioning support for Israel is one reason why Israel is never held accountable for what it does to the Palestinians. And therefore, we have this really terrible cycle where mostly the Palestinians have suffered. But what happened this week is that the Israelis suffered huge quantifiable levels of agony, of pain, of questioning, of fear, of uncertainty about what went wrong. And we don't know what are the consequences of that in political terms and and other terms. We know that in the short run, American support, which is coming to Israel in the form of the Ford Naval Group, armaments and boats and airplanes and technical intelligence, all kinds of electronic stuff, and they'll give Israel everything it needs to keep killing and subjugating Palestinians We've been through that before, and we'll go through it again now. The Israelis feel if they do it harder this time, if they're more brutal, if they're more inhuman, then maybe it'll bring about a different result. But of course, it won't. So with that in mind, I want to get your thoughts on a conversation happening online and in the media right now, in which some are calling out what they see as the West's double standard when it comes to the Palestinians. The U.S. has spent most of the last two years trying to rally the whole world around an occupied people's right to resist that occupation. And of course, we are talking about Ukraine and Russia. (laughs) Biden has shown unquestioning and unwavering support for Ukraine, and he's not alone. What's your take on the West versus the rest? Well, first of all, I don't think there really is a West, but I know what you mean. There is a um, tradition among many Western powers, including the biggest one, the U.S., uh, to act in a colonial way. Um, They're not colonial like in the 19th century, but they're colonial powers that feel that they dictate how things work around the world. Who trades with whom? Who has military bases? Who gets licenses to do this or to do that? They have the ability to shape the world politically, economically, and culturally in their own image. That's what colonialism is. The second thing is that these are politicians, and politicians lie. They lie out of their uh, out of their teeth, through their teeth. The politicians will do anything to stay in power, and we know that, and, and we don't hold it against them necessarily because that's how politicians uh, operate. 
The double standard is a function of the two issues I mentioned, the colonial nature and the political leader's nature of hypocrisy and lying and doing whatever they need to do to stay in power. So they, they realized many years ago that the leaders of Israel or the Jewish communities in the Middle East and around the world, in Europe and North America, that they were much more important for those Western political leaders in various ways, strategic, electoral, economic, uh, whatever, and some biblical stuff. Therefore, they gave them priority, and they still do. The double standard has become worse in many cases, and the, to the point now where, say, in the U.S., uh, and in parts of Europe, or especially England and Germany, there are efforts to prevent Palestinians or pro-Palestinian progressive people from even speaking out in public, silence them. So they took our land, they took our rights, and now they want to take our voices. They want to take our entire humanity and shove it underground in a, in a grave somewhere. And, and this is not going to happen because we're humans. We fight back, we push back, we try to do it peacefully, we've tried for decades and decades, but this hasn't impacted yet the policies of Western politicians, especially American and British uh, politicians. And this is really the battleground uh, that is to come. After the break, how the U.S. role in the conflict affects the region. On the Inside Story podcast, relentless Israeli attacks on 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza, while Israel mourns hundreds killed by Hamas. Why has politics failed so badly? What's next for both sides? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While Israel is focused on fighting a war against Hamas in Gaza, there's also another name on everyone's lips. Hezbollah in Lebanon. To the north, near the Lebanese border, explosions in the occupied Shiva farms and Kfar Shuba hills may develop into a serious escalation of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Lebanon's armed group Hezbollah says it was behind the rocket and artillery attack. Al Jazeera correspondent Zaina Khodr explains what seems to be the strategy. Hezbollah is an ally of Hamas. Both these groups are part of the so-called axis of resistance that is backed by Iran. Iran's broader strategy really has been to create a, a threat, a, a threat to, to the Israelis, a multi-front threat, with the ultimate aim of trying to encircle Israel uh, from more than one front. Now, Hezbollah also has calculations. It has been treading very carefully. Um, it doesn't want war at the end of the day because it, war is costly. Hezbollah is trying to avoid, you know, you can see through its actions, the way the escalation has been, it's a gradual escalation. First, you know, maintaining the rules of engagement, focusing attacks on disputed territories, then uh, and the next attack, more or less telling the Israelis, this is what you can face. So this is why Hezbollah has, you know, got involved. It has made it very, very clear that it is not neutral in, in, in this war. So, Rami, let's talk about some of the other power players in the region. President Biden has also said that Hamas's incursion into Israel is not a message to other groups to take advantage of the situation. Let me say this as clearly as I can. This is not a moment for any party hostile to Israel to exploit these attacks to seek advantage. 
The world is watching. The question is, if that was a thinly veiled message to Hezbollah, which fought their own war with Israel in 2006, is that how you take those comments? Yes, it was a message to Hezbollah and also a message to Iran. And the United States political system and the media, the public sphere, is obsessed with Iran. Mm. It's, it, there's a kind of hysteria in the United States about Iran. And some of it is because of the Iranians, the Islamic Republic taking the American hostages in 1979. But a lot of it is manufactured by various groups, including uh, Israel, that want to show that Iran is a mortal threat uh, to Israel, and therefore they want the U.S. to contain Iran. So yes, Iran and Hezbollah are the uh, targets now of these efforts by many people in the United States political system to prevent the clashes between Hamas and Israel from expanding uh, further. I think it's safe to assume that the clashes between Hamas and Israel will not expand very much further. Mm. Hezbollah now has gotten so strong militarily that it has forced Israel into a situation of mutual deterrence, a truce. Mm. They're not going to fight a war because a war between Hezbollah and Israel would be so destructive to both countries because the ability of Hezbollah now is so great that it can reach any part of Israel with very sophisticated weapons, and so can the Israelis do that in Lebanon and destroy half the country or all the country if they want. You said that it's safe to say that this will not expand further into a regional conflict. What makes you say that? I don't think anybody in the region, including Hezbollah and Hamas and the Iranians and the Arab countries and Israel, I don't think anybody wants a wider regional war. First, it would not solve anything. Second, it would cause massive destruction. And third, the Israelis have a couple of hundred nuclear warheads and they will use them. Hmm. If I was a Jewish Israeli Zionist and I lived in a situation where I thought that my country was going to be annihilated, I would use probably nuclear weapons. So nobody wants to get to the point where we can start having nuclear weapons flying around the region. I don't think it's in anybody's interest to have a wider war. The Palestinians in particular are the only ones that really feel they've got to keep confronting Israel in every way they can, including militarily. Finally, let's talk about the bigger picture here, the wider region. This is not what was on the radar just a week ago when we were talking about how Israel and Saudi Arabia seem to be getting closer to normalizing relations for the first time. It would be a grand bargain and create a tectonic shift in the Middle East. Israel and Saudi Arabia have never had diplomatic relations, but both countries' leaders appear to want normalization, and the U.S. is actively negotiating its details. The U.S. has been very invested in this idea of a new Middle East, integrating Israel into the region and neutralizing Iran as a regional power. But where the Palestinians fit into that equation was always an open question. So what does this war mean for these normalization efforts and the whole U.S. vision of the Middle East? 
the normalization effort uh, is not a serious uh, process. It is a commercial, mercantile, business, money-making effort. And it was always done because leaderships felt that they could increase their security in their leadership positions in the UAE or in Sudan or in Morocco, because in return for normalizing ties with Israel, the U.S. was going to give them stuff, military, money, trade, whatever. So this was a mercantile deal by a small group of people. Uh, the popular opinion in the Arab world has been pretty fascinating. It clearly, emphatically, and repeatedly makes it known through surveys and, and opinion polls for the last 20, 30 years that the majority of Arabs will happily have normal ties with the state of Israel once Israel has normal relations with the state of Palestine. And the Palestinians have their uh, grievances resolved and they have a state. So this situation is going to be exacerbated now with way stronger sentiments across a wider number of people across the Arab and other parts of the Middle East that say we, we can never have anything to do with the Israeli state until it changes its policy towards Palestinians and works towards a peaceful resolution based on equal rights. And it's fascinating that uh, this goes back to the question of why do Western political leaders, especially in the U.S., give so much support to Israel and so little to Palestine and Palestinian rights. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Faranisa Campana and Miranda Lynn, with Amy Walters, Khaled Sultan, David Enders, Zaina Bazar, Ashish Malhotra, Chloe K. Lee, Sonia Bagat, Sariyat Khalili, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is the Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.